This is Isaka's Page to Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Lisa Villanueva, and welcome to the Isaka Podcast. I am the IT Governance Professional Practices Principal here at ISACA, and I'm excited to have Guy Pierce with us today. He's the author of a recently published white paper, Real World Data Resilience, Demands an Integrated Approach to AI, Data Governance, and Cloud. Guy, welcome to the ISACA podcast. How are you today? Thank you, Lisa, and thank you to Isaka. Uh, all good this side, sunshine and roses. How about there with you? Oh, sunshine and roses here today in uh, glorious Florida. <laughs> so I'm really excited about the weather and I'm excited about this topic in particular. Um, Guy, can we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Professionally, uh, I guess um, we can start with uh, what I studied. Uh, so my university background, includes a degree in computer science, uh, a degree in economics and quantitative methods, as well as an MBA in general management, and as well as two ISACA certifications, a CGUIT and a CDIPSI. The early part of my career was in computer science, so I started the whole journey as a programmer, which actually, incidentally, you find is a perfect basis for almost anything else you do in your career, whether you go into management or you go into any other area, simply because so much is dependent on that computer environment. Nonetheless, um, after a good few years as a programmer and an analyst, including as a data analyst and pioneering data science, at least for the organizations I was employed by in the early 90s, took a stretch into management and started exploring strategy. And uh, in a large bank, I was uh, an internal strategy consultant. And after that, took a six-year stint with a boutique management consultancy where the focus was not only on strategy, not only on IT, not only on data, but also on risk. Um, and how all of these things uh, actually came together. Um, more recently, I've served as CEO for a multinational financial services organization. Um, I've also served on numerous boards of directors and for some of those boards serving on their IT governance committees, their risk committees, their audit committees. And uh, what I do these days is consult predominantly in the data space, but not only data, it's also its interaction with risk, with strategy, with digital transformation, with operating models, with business models. And um, I guess this is part of how we ended up on the conversation about data resilience. Um, it's, a, it's quite a, a convergence of everything that's happened during my career. Oh, absolutely. And what a really impressive resume you have there. And that makes this paper and its content all that much more compelling. I was really, really grabbed by the material. And I really found it interesting how you talked to us a little bit about the evolution of some terms that we're always quite familiar with, but probably don't know the history of. So can you talk to us a little bit about the origin of the word data and how it has relevance for today? Actually, that's quite interesting because one of the first things, you know, when you look at a, a subject and you think, oh, you know, what is the root of the subject? And uh, it's always a, a useful area to explore. And we talk about data resilience, which is a modern term. But, uh, you know, for starters, you think I've got to break that down into its essentials and try and figure out, well, what is this? And really, it seems that data as a term 
originated about 380, say 400 odd years ago. And um, it's only until around about 1946 that it seems to have taken a context that we can relate to broadly today. As, um, and in fact, uh, I'm going to read right now, as, because it is a quote, as transmittable and storable information by which computer operations are performed. And the reason why I stopped at 1946, and certainly there's just so many definitions of data, is simply because I thought, wow, that's the closest to a really important construct in data, which is the data life cycle. But also the other one is the movement of data. And I guess if someone else had written the article, they might have stopped somewhere else in the evolution of the term. But I found this one was just so important for those two important points. Then resilience. And actually what was quite interesting when you look up the history or the etymology, as it's known, of resilience, is that term is also around about 300 years old. So data and resilience as terms both emerged at about the same time, not necessarily the same place. I'm not sure what that place might have been. But what is interesting is that the definition of resilience being, roughly speaking, the ability to bounce back from adversity hasn't changed over the last 300 years. But generally speaking, so when we bring the two together, what we have is data as really a path of managing data from its source to ultimately what you do with it when its useful life you know, has come to an end and how you ensure that that path which data follows between when it's collected and has it's used and when it's disposed of, how you ensure that that is, if there is a disruption, that it doesn't disrupt the operation of the organization. Certainly it's been an interesting journey just studying the words themselves. Yeah, I found that interesting. You say 300 years ago, I just hadn't really thought about it and put it in that context of the 1600s. And certainly with data comes, you know, the idea of change. And that's another compelling component of the uh, article that you wrote, where you talk about how it's important that we, uh, based on the velocity of change, that we really separate that theory from practice. You also talk about expected and unexpected change. So tell us a little bit about the impact of those things as it relates to data resilience. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, if, if that's a, a fabulous area to, to speak about that you raised there, Lisa, because it is really, it's about change and that nothing is, is stable. So for sure, you know, within an organization, there is the incremental change. You know, there might be a change in regulation here or maybe a new consulting firm comes in with the latest fad and changes a process here, or there's a new technology and there's an exploration of the value of that technology in the environment. Those are probably more the incremental change environments, but really the ones that can certainly begin to turn things upside down is when there's introduction of the general data protection regulation in the European Union, which did replace preceding regulations. The issue is, is that its scope was just so much wider. And even to this day, which I think is now almost four years after that regulation became in force, organizations are still figuring out not only the interpretability or how to interpret the regulation, but also what the implications are for everything from let's say consent and right to be forgotten, all the way to things like, oh my gosh, what happens if we begin to transfer data across international borders from or to the European Union from anywhere else? So that has a really big impact on how 
data is managed and how data is governed, but there could be even more. I mean, think of our, you know, emerging socio-political constructs, even if you think about, and I say political carefully, because there is some regulation related to some of the issues that are happening in our society today. But even that can change how we refer to things even. And if we used to refer to, let's say, let's speak about gender as, you know, either male or female today, you might say, oh, gosh, you know, is our data complete? Um, you know, how do we react to these kinds of questions? Do we begin to capture different nuances under this? What do we do? And that's more like a shock to the environment. And by shock, it's potentially disruptive is, wow, do we change our whole way of thinking around how we process data, what we do with data, how we communicate, how we collect data even? Just so much, I mean, and, and those are just some examples of, you know, said the more control change within the organization, but then some of the bigger dynamics that occur in the environment that the organizations operate in have got just as significant, and in fact, even more significant impact on all of the, uh, um, shall we call building blocks of your data management or your data governance environment that are impacted and that actually demand answers, if you want. Absolutely, absolutely. And another term you use as relates to change is drift. So I found that very interesting. But the changes are happening, what, with hardware and software components? You mentioned regulatory with GDPR and some of the sociopolitical. Uh, it's really all quite fascinating. In fact, uh, yeah, drift. In fact, don't lose drift. I'm so glad that you that you brought up drift as well. Because the one thing that drives decision-making is, is often a whole portfolio of assumptions. And some of them you don't even know you're making, but they're assumptions nonetheless. And as a result of these things, a decision is taken based on information that you have at hand. Let's talk about artificial intelligence. You build an artificial intelligence model and it's based on data as at a particular time. And heaven forbid you build your artificial intelligence model where the environment changed the nature of that data. In other words, it's not a static, let's, let's call it a social scenario that it's collected under. But let's say there's a, a revolution somewhere and a society changes from one form with one form or, or you know, with one set of norms and behaviors to another over time. That's going to result in a change in the data. And the first thing that you've got a question then for that artificial intelligence model that's built on top of that data is what is the implications for that artificial intelligence model? And some may say, I oh, don't worry about it. You know, it'll adjust for the change of data. Not a chance. There are certain assumptions that have been made around that model. And as soon as you start changing the data, those assumptions are violated. And just like in mathematics where, hang on, if I've got simple linear regression and I'm looking for the best linear unbiased estimator, there's certain assumptions around the nature of the data that you're testing. Those same things apply in the case of artificial intelligence. And in fact, that's the, also the challenge with this environment is so many folks are, you know, so interested in pursuing what the tool can do that they don't stop to think about, well, what are the assumptions even that the tool is making with respect to the data or how it is trained? And this is all, all of these changes and some of the changes we were speaking about in the previous, in the previous question, Lisa, is what is drift and that drift in, because that's data drift and data drift impacts the model. First question is, is that model still reflective of the reality we had it 
before these things began to change data. So drift is a critical factor. Things do not stay the same. And it could be as simple from the way that data is collected, the type of data that's collected, the volume of data that's collected, the time frames over which data are collected, the intervals within those time frames with which data change any of those, and you've got to then go back to your models and say, well, what is the impact of that? How has that drift in my assumptions or the environment around which data was created and collected and prepared for ingestion into the artificial intelligence model? What is the impact of that on the model itself? And are decisions I make based on the output of those models still valid? And that is the concept of drift. In fact, we could have a whole conversation just on drift, but it's a, it's a critical issue. Absolutely. And it really goes to how AI is impacting data governance, because you talk about how data governance, AI, they're all intersecting with data resiliency. Uh, and this inter intersection, it really is fundamental to trustworthiness within AI. So, you know, our whole ISACA community of professionals, they know how important it is to uphold these key tenets of digital trust, whether it be quality, security, privacy, or ethics. But, you know, talk to us a little bit more about how governance and AI are intersecting with this concept of data resilience? This might be a bit of a longer answer. Um, <laughs> you know, let's start with artificial intelligence. You know, everyone gets excited again about the tool. Uh, let's take the tool and you plop it on a database. Next minute, you've got outcomes and everyone thinks, ah, oh, this is brilliant. We can now make decisions because this artificial intelligence tool is, you know, giving us these kinds of insights. But how many people stop to think and say, hang on a minute. How do we know that that data was accurate? What is the extent of the completeness of that data? Is the data valid? Does it exist within defined ranges? And in many cases, there's so much excitement around the tool and not about, hang on, what is it about the data that I need to know in order to give me confidence, that trust, Lisa, that you speak about in the outcome from that tool? And that's where the discipline of data governance uh, comes in, which is basically about you know, defining who's responsible for what in data management, uh, who's accountable for what in data management, and in fact, on responsibility and accountability. In many RACI charts, you know, those responsible, accountable, consulted, informed matrices, you often see under a person's name for an activity, A slash R, accountable and responsible. There's no such thing. You're either accountable or you're responsible. As soon as you say someone is accountable and responsible, you are introducing a conflict of interest because now this person is not only responsible for performing the task, but is accountable for determining whether that task is performed correctly. So a key construct in data governance, and I think many folks do miss this piece, is there's no such thing as accountability and responsibility. It's a definition of who is doing the work, who's performing those enterprise data management activities, and which different person is ensuring that those activities are performed correctly from an accountability perspective. And that's the segregation of duties that, that eliminates a conflict of interest where I do something and at the same time I say it's right. No, I do something someone else says whether it's right and that reduces that conflict of interest. So data governance, a really important construct, those roles, responsibilities over a whole portfolio of data management activities. And those data management activities, 
could be your data quality activities. It could be your master data activities, which are whole domains of data. It's your reference data activities, which is basically your lookup tables. It is your metadata activities. And I'm not necessarily only talking about technical metadata, which is what's the structure of the data as it's stored on storage, but also the operational metadata, the data dictionaries, the business glossaries. Uh, what are the processes for maintaining all of these? How do I look at unstructured data? And by unstructured data, it's the stuff that's not necessarily easy to store or manage in a data environment. Video, audio, photographs, scanned documents, even Word documents if you want, or spreadsheets. How do I manage these in a whole data governance construct? All of that is so important for artificial intelligence because unless I can say data is well managed, I can also provide some kind of attestation or certification of the level of accuracy of the data that's being used to feed AI. Uh, um, how are you ever, unless you've got this in place, how are you ever really going to be able to trust the outcome of your artificial intelligence tool? Then artificial intelligence itself, and maybe this is a slightly different subject all by itself, how do I know that the artificial intelligence algorithms are doing what I think they're doing? Do I just assume, oh, because they're provided by vendor X that they're perfect? Because um, remember, those algorithms were produced in a vacuum compared to the environment that you're applying that artificial intelligence over. So think about the things that can go wrong now. So first of all, I'm in AI. I haven't bothered for quality. I make a decision. Boom, it's the wrong decision. I've got reputation risk. Oh, gosh, I've got to get social media. I've got to get some kind of PR firm to do some, you know, fancy dancing to ensure that, uh, you know, that, oops, you know, we made a mistake. It was the wrong data. Or heaven forbid, if you're dealing with a regulator where you're submitting a report to a regulator and the regulator sends a notification of a matter requiring um, uh, uh, attention or matter requiring immediate attention, where mm, this information is wrong. Can we come and have a look and see what you guys are doing? Because there's something wrong with the reports you're submitting to us. Nobody wants to be subject to an MRI or MRIA. But all of these, just as much as resilience is about the availability component, resilience is about many more things. Like in this case, we're just talking about the um, reliability of the data that we're using to feed into an artificial intelligence system. So for sure, those things are intrinsically linked. Absolutely. Gain the skills to become a tech-driven business leader. The University of Cincinnati Online's master's degree in information systems is a flexible 100% online program and one of the top 15 MSIS programs in North America. UC Online's MSIS program offers innovative curriculum that helps students build their core competencies in enterprise resource planning, business intelligence, database design and modeling, and project management. Don't just learn about technology and business, gain hands-on experience with this program's experiential component and apply classroom learning to real-world problems. With flexible options, create an academic path that suits your lifestyle and career goals. Balance your studies, work, and family obligations with asynchronous courses that allow you to earn a degree around your busy schedule. Are you ready to build on your business and technical skills? Advance your career with an MSIS degree from UC Online. 
Get more details and apply at online.uc.edu forward slash MSIS. You talk about those AI models, and it's really important, like you said, that there's safeguards to validate the integrity of that data, you know, like end to end. So talk to us a little bit about how ignoring or really not paying attention to that metadata, uh, the data and the metadata can pose significant risk for enterprises. Right. Okay. So there's two fabulous things or not so fabulous things that happen in organizations. The one is not knowing whether data is fit for purpose and actually perhaps being ignorant of realizing, oh gosh, is the data we're using fit for purpose? So let's put that in one bucket. And the other bucket that you, you're speaking to here on the metadata side is the how is that end user interpreting the data that they're using either in a report or in a, uh, a piece of analytics or in an AI tool? And that's a such an important piece. In fact, there's so many things that are important to get right about the metadata. So many folks don't even talk about metadata. They don't realize metadata is important. But if you've got a, a large organization and everyone, let's assume that there is a single version of the truth, if you want, managed and well-governed, is, is everyone interpreting the data in that environment in exactly the same way? So one person, let's say in the marketing department, could look at a data element and say, oh, I think it means this. I'm going to do some report and analysis and, oh, look what popped out. Whereas you've got operations that look at that very same data element and say, oh, I think it means this. I'm going to be doing this. And they get an outcome. And when you compare outcomes, you say, gosh, these are inconsistent. You know, you're saying this marketing, you're saying this operations. How can this be? And what's happened is that there's been a difference in interpretation between those two departments about what data means. Good, a good data dictionary um, will enable both those departments to go to the dictionary and see, well, what is that data element? Oh, no, this isn't what I was looking for. I was looking for something else. Let me carry on looking and having at least some mechanism for encouraging a single interpretation of data so you don't have those mixes of interpretation across the organization is a key issue for, again, it's for resilience, because what's happening here, the potential for making incorrect decisions. And if you've got an incorrect decision, something could happen. I mean, for example, it's an incorrect decision about, oh, we should rather not be pursuing this product anymore, let's get rid of this product out of our portfolio. And then discovering, oh gosh, you know, we've gone and, you know, deleted data over time, as far as it relates to that product and suddenly realizing that was a mistake. The data wasn't, you know, the, the data wasn't of good quality. We misinterpreted what those data elements were. And in fact, we made the wrong decision and there's an impact on the organization. We've maybe changed staffing. We've maybe changed processes as a result of those. And those are resilience impacts. In fact, one of the big issues around resilience as a whole is not so much the categories like usability or robustness or availability or security or any of these kinds of things. It's what's the nature of the processes that are operating to ensure these aspects of resilience? What about the people responsible for those processes? What is the nature of the technology that's supporting the processes that enables resilience? And in fact, it's not just that. What are the governance constructs, not just data governance, but business governance or even IT governance constructs that ensure that all of these are occurring 
in a well-defined manner that results in outcomes that are valid uh, and that protect the organization from things going wrong. It's not to say everything needs to be so perfectly structured, but at least for your basic and core operational processes, that sort of structure is really important to ensure not only around your data quality side or the fit for purposeness of data, but also around the metadata side and ensuring that an approved definition is, is one that's really gone through an approval process with its segregation of duties between accountabilities and responsibilities, even if it means that in some cases there isn't only one term for a data element that works in an organization, sometimes there are even synonyms and synonyms can be permitted. You know, it's not to say there's only one definition, everyone else make sure you move to one definition. That's never going to happen. Synonyms are a big part of operations and they should be permitted, but they should be available for everyone to see within a metadata construct. All right. Well, thank you so much. That's really helpful to understand how important it is to also keep in mind the metadata. Um, and, and as you were responding to that question, you talked a little bit about comparing outcomes. And that got me thinking a little bit about how data resilience would vary, right? Not just within an organization and how things are interpreted, uh, but perhaps also in different economic sectors. Could you give us a little sense for some of those considerations we should keep in mind? Uh, so data resilience across sectors. Yeah, that is interesting because I mean, there isn't the same answer for everyone with respect to all of the various dimensions. So maybe if we think about security in an industry where maybe there's not a lot of personal data, the issues around security and privacy are entirely different to maybe the issues around security and privacy in let's say an industry that's in the primary sector. So let's say forestry or fishing or agriculture where it's not about individual data, which has an impact on which regulations apply to that environment. However, what you're going to have then is you're going to have corporate data and it may not be deemed sensitive because at least for publicly traded companies, you're going to have be able to access various registries that tell you about, yes, this is the company name, this is its registration number, this is its registered trading address and so on. But certainly the nature of data used in each industry is different. Services industries or the services sector and the quaternary sector in particular, which is the knowledge sector, are very highly dependent on data for their products and services versus the secondary sector, which is manufacturing, and maybe the primary sector, which is your raw materials, maybe don't use data in, you know, in the same way. They've got a lot more heavy machinery. There's a lot more of those programmable logic controllers, if you want, and I think that might be an out-of-date term. I think a lot of it now is Internet of Things kinds of sensors. But the nature of the data collected is different by industry and because the nature of the data collected by industry is different the challenges around ensuring resilience will be different too absolutely and uh, in the paper you also talk about financial market disruptions and that really got me thinking i mean we started off talking about how the pandemic has brought a lot of light to data and the management of it but financial market disruption is something that we should be thinking about too and that's again we talked about different economic sectors, but data resilience in the in, in financial market and other types of disruption, it really should be top of mind. And in fact, uh, there's an interesting story around um, this point, Lisa. So, you know, at the, the last global financial crisis, what, let's say 2008 to 2010, you had all of the, you know, banks submitting their regular reports to the Bank for International Settlements in Geneva, 
at the point, the, the Bank for International Settlements was looking at all of us and saying, but this data, you know, is it right? And in order for that global context to think, well, what are we going to do about this global crisis? One of the big things that emerged out of that crisis was the creation of the Bank for International Settlements regulation called BCBS 239. And BCBS 239 focused and held boards of directors of globally systemically important banks accountable for ensuring the quality of their data, metadata, the, the roles and responsibilities defined, you know, with all of these things accountable for ensuring that the reports submitted to the Bank for International Settlements were indeed accurate. So that is an important issue where, oh gosh, look what's happened now. We've now, as a globally systemically important banks, and globally systemically important banks are those banks that have been deemed too big to fail. And in fact, the, 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 you know, the whole scope of data governance and, and data resilience even is shifting down from those really big multinational banks to even local and regional banks. But that has an impact. And in fact, you find that when that regula regulation was induced in 2013, and I think globally systemically important banks needed to have all of those requirements applied by 2018, if I'm not mistaken, so many global banks said, no, we're not ready. So in spite of five years having passed, the impact of changes in that regulatory environment within the financial sector were still deemed too big to perform even over a duration of, as I said, I think it was around about five years. And that's just one example. What happens now when you start thinking about how you use data? So, uh, you know, so there's been such a, a development in privacy regulation that even things like, uh, well, at least in Canada, there was an interesting case where a little while ago we had Clearview AI here, maybe it was a year, two, three, which were scraping images or likenesses of people off the internet in Canada for part of a facial recognition program. And the privacy commissioner said, whoa, hang on a minute, you know, that's data. And uh, Clearview were arguing, yeah, but it's publicly available. And they were saying, well, hang on, no, because no one placed their image there, you know, that was placed wherever it was placed for a reason, not for someone else to be coming along and scraping it. And as a result of, I guess, some of the brouhaha that was an outcome of that, Clearview AI left Canada, which introduced all sorts of other uh, challenges. But for sure, in that whole environment, there are a whole lot of impacts, not only in the financial sector, but in others sectors where data is a significant contributor of value to the organization. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that information. It's really helpful. And I think it's important that we note to the listeners that everything that you said also applies to the cloud, which is covered, you know, quite depth in the paper as well. Just in closing, are there any parting thoughts that you have on the topic? Uh, we've talked about the convergence of uh, AI, right? And all of the concepts you talked about also apply to cloud. Any closing thoughts on how all of these concepts are converging in the data resilience space? Yes, uh, thank you, Lisa. I mean, the first thing I think before I get to answer that is for folks to realize that cloud is not a, is not a solution to data resilience. And the main reason for that is even cloud vendors have outages. So one of the big selling features of cloud as a data resilient solution is being, oh no, we can secure greater uptime and organizations may feel, ah, oh, great, it's in cloud. Um, I don't have to worry about uptime or downtime management anymore. 
But if you go and read the literature, there have been major cloud outages at all three major cloud vendors, whether it's Google, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's Amazon. And as a result of that, organizations have now had to revert to multi-cloud solutions to address what they were hoping the first cloud solution would really do from that resilience perspective. So first of all, cloud is not a full solution to all of those resilience challenges. It may be a slightly better one. But the other thing vendors were, were, were speaking about was the fact that it will cost you less. Well, now if you're in a multi-cloud environment, the question is, is this really costing me less anymore? So a lot of interesting conversations around the cloud side. But for sure, the one thing cloud has done is it's made AI significantly more accessible. So instead of having to spin up AI on premises and buy you know, servers and figure these things out, these things are so available on the cloud, which has really facilitated AI. Because AI is now easily facilitated. It's now a matter of where's the data I can put into this. And as a result of that, per some of the previous questions you were asking, Lisa, data governance has to come to the fore. So cloud has enabled AI. AI requires data. Data, in order to be trustworthy, has got to ensure that those data inputs are secure. So certainly these things all tie very tightly together. In fact, it does have you wondering what would have happened if cloud wasn't there to the development of AI as a sector more recently? You know, would it have accelerated as quickly as it had? Probably not, but for sure, the fact that cloud adoption has accelerated AI adoption has had implications for data and therefore for data governance. I mean, these things very tightly tied together. You could almost not think about these things separately. They are integrated. And don't forget the data resilience piece. The data resilience piece was meant to be that cloud component, but bear in mind, cloud is not a 100% answer to resilience. So they tie together, they do different things, but it's interesting how they do converge for sure. Right, right. And we need to really keep all of those things in mind. I think this is fascinating how uh, the papers really taught us how to think about data and resilience in its more modern context or terminology uh, or definition. So thank you so much, Guy. I want to thank Guy Pierce for joining us here on the ISACA podcast. We're out of time, but hopefully we've whet your appetite to go out and look for that white paper. It's very good information. We're excited about that content. We hope you will be too. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Lisa. And thank you very much, ISACA. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode.